As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He is director of White House National Economic Council, which means he is mum during the political season, and we are knee-deep in the political season now to the midterms. Brian Deese joins us from the White House this morning. Brian, to me, the singular note, which does wrap around your remit, is the gentle lady from Hawaii has exited the Democratic Party. And Ms. Gabbard was really something about the cowardly wokeness of the elitist Democratic Party. Your boss is the most middle-class representative boss of his generation. Joe Biden breathes Scranton. What's going to be the reset on Democratic Party economic policy for the middle class coming out of this election? Well, look, I think you're seeing it in real time. As you said, Joe Biden ran for president uh, based on an economic theory that we needed to build this economy and this economic recovery, as he says in very practical terms, from the bottom up and the middle out, not from the top down. And you're seeing that in practice. If you look just, for example, at what's happening in American manufacturing across this country, nearly 700,000 manufacturing jobs created. And you're seeing company after company make investments that they're making a bet, a long-term bet to make capital investments in America. Uh, Today, just today, we're gonna announce almost $3 billion in grants to battery, battery manufacturers I was in Cleveland last week. You're seeing this explosion of interest in making the United States the place where we build and and, and innovate, and that's going to pay benefits for the long term. You were just in Cleveland to see Cleveland Yankees. Admit it. Brian, I want to go to the topic of the moment, which is the strategic political reserve. We all get the politics of it and that. You took Hydrocarbon 101 at Middlebury years ago. Can you explain to me what the democratic politics is of refilling the strategic petroleum reserve down the road. Yeah, you got it. I do have to clarify that I'm a Red Sox fan. It's an important. It's important to me to get that. Very on the record. important. Um, so look, uh, the president's going to announce two things today. The first is additional 15 million barrels for December out of the SPR. That makes good on the commitment that he made several months ago to release 180 million barrels and provide that stability to the market. He's making good on that commitment with a 15 million barrel release today. But second, he's announcing 
an a plan and a policy to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when the price of oil falls to about $70 a barrel. That makes sense for two reasons. One, protecting taxpayers. We sold oil out of the SPRO at a higher price, at around $90 to $100 a barrel. Repurchasing at $70 a barrel means we can actually strengthen the asset. We can get more oil back into that national reserve. And second, it provides some certainty to the industry because we, or we, we will have the authority to both purchase when the price comes down to 70 and also enter into contracts to purchase at around $70 in the future. But one thing that's very difficult is that we're not talking about the present and what releasing more from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve will actually do to bring down prices not only of gasoline but diesel, of the refined goods that we need. How much are you thinking about additional measures to try to shore up both the stores of diesel as well as lower prices? Are you talking about banning exports, for example, to Europe? Well, first, let's look at where we are. Um, we have, since the beginning of the summer, seen gas prices come down about 30%. They're about a, down about $1.15 a gallon at the pump. We've seen natural gas prices come off from a high of almost $9 uh, to under $6 in trading today. So we've seen a real uh, reduction in energy prices, and that's consistent with and, 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 and driven by the policies that this administration and that the president have directed. At the same time, we continue to be very focused on making more progress. Seeing that price come down further and the announcements today, I think, are going to help on that front. But, with but all also respect, addressing places where we have... But, but OK, but that has come down. It hasn't come back that much. But diesel has not come down. And that affects the price of everything. And perhaps people don't see it and breathe it the way they view gasoline prices. But this is affecting very much the heating costs as well as the shipping costs and has raised questions about banning exports at a time when Europe is flat on its back as well. What's your view? Absolutely. We're very concerned about inventory levels. Uh, for refined product, diesel in particular, particularly across the east coast of the United States. And we are operating right now at unacceptably low inventory levels, inventory levels for diesel that, for example, are 50, 60 percent lower than their five-year historical average. So this is a conversation that we have had with the industry consistently, and we've been very clear. We need to see more progress in building those inventories. The federal government has some tools in that respect. We have a Northeast Home Heating Oil Reserve, which is diesel, uh, and we have looked very carefully um, at being prepared to deploy as and when necessary in that context. But ultimately, what we need to see is the industry build those inventory okay. levels so that we don't put ourselves in a situation. To your question about exports, the president has been very clear and will continue to be clear. At this moment, when we have uncertainty and uncertainty for American consumers, we have to keep all options on the table. That's what we're doing. Real quickly, what's going to be the trigger point to understand whether it is time to look at exports? Well, look, I'm not going to uh, explicitly uh, make a decision before the president or articulate a decision before the president has made it. But the president's going to continue to do what he has done over the course of the last several months, which is assess the market, understand where we are, and understand the tools that we have and the impact that they'll have. Today, he's announcing a, a release from the SPRO, but also importantly, this repurchase plan, which is something that industry analysts and others have been calling for for some time. We think that this will make some difference. We're going to keep at it, keep a close eye on these things with an understanding that we have these tools on the table and we'll deploy them when it's in America's interest. Brian Deese, director of the White House National Economic Council. Thank you. This is a joy because when you go to Boulder, Colorado, you know that the Zoomies are down to Colorado Springs and they're the real deal. Out of the United States Air Force Academy, an actual pilot 
running an airline, the chief executive officer with United, the pilot, Scott Kirby, uh, joins us this morning. Scott, I got 18 questions from viewers that have everything to do with the United Lounge, this, that, and the other thing. I want to talk about the ratio of business class to economy fares. I follow one United fare, and it's $6 for every dollar of economy. I've never seen it. Where is business class in three years? So uh, thanks for thanks for the intro, by the way. That's a unique one, uh, and I like it. Um, but business travel, business class uh, is demand is really, really strong. It's really, really strong in economy, but it's even stronger in the premium cabinet. United has more premium seats than, than any other airline in the country. Um, one long haul business demand has, has mostly come all the way back to Europe, at least. Um, it's even stronger than it is mm-hmm. domestically. It's harder to do calls with someone in Europe. But the other trend I think that's huge is there's more premium leisure demand. And really that is enabled by hybrid work. Hybrid work right. makes every weekend, a potential holiday weekend. And there's there are people that will go to Europe and they'll work for one or two weeks in Europe and they work during the day. They go out late at night with the French or the Spaniards, by the way, that's the only way I right. could possibly go hang out with the French and Spaniards if I stayed on East Coast time. Uh, <laughs> and like this, I think it's a permanent step level increase uh, in right. demand, both for weekend travel, but also for premium demand. To the volatility, the signal nature of your total return of stock is a new persistency of cash flow from business class enough to give you a more persistent cash flow on your financial statement? Well, look, I think we'll still have volatility. We'll still be affected by the economy or short term in the fuel prices. So, so it won't eliminate um, cyclicality. But what it does is more important, which I think it raises the, the level. So the, the lowest period of revenue will be higher than it was before, and the highest period will be even higher. Um, it doesn't take out the cyclicality, but it it does raise uh, the bar across the board. It's just a new permanently higher level of demand. But to that point, Scott, we've spent the better part of the last three hours talking about whether or not we're seeing a softening in demand, which is what policymakers are trying to engineer to bring inflation down. Inflation, which in some sectors of the economy means people are just spending less in certain areas. It does not seem that it has hit air travel yet. Do you expect that the demand deterioration is going to come? And will that ultimately mean you don't have the pricing power to keep fares high? Well, I think the slowing economy and or a recession are going to be a headwind to demand, already are a headwind to demand. But there's three trends in aviation that I think are more, they're currently more than fully offsetting. I think we'll continue to. One, we're still in the COVID recovery phase. Japan just opened last week. No matter what you think business travel is going to ultimately get to, it is going to go almost certainly going higher from here. So we're still in COVID recovery, unlike most industries. The second one is this hybrid work, making every weekend a holiday trend. Like we Third, September was the third highest RASM month in the history of United Airlines. That is an off-peak month. What happened during September, and we saw it even earlier, we were seeing it in and October, by the way, is going to be better than September. So it's going to move to fourth place, is people are now able to work remotely for one or two days. So they can, instead of being tethered to their desk at the office, they can leave Wednesday or Thursday, go somewhere, yeah. work remotely for one or two days. They're taking extra trips. That's a trend that's not appreciated by the market yet. It's unique yeah. to aviation. But it's offsetting those economic headwinds. It's a tailwind that's that's offsetting it. Yeah, and Scott, we call that doing a John Farrow at Bloomberg <laughs> Surveillance. Why don't you continue, Kaylee, with Mr. Kirby? 
Well, that's on on the demand side, Scott, but there also is the fact that you are still constrained on the supply side. Capacity is still more limited, and in part of that has to do with the labor equation. Can you just give us your best estimate as to whether or not you're ultimately going to be able to expand capacity again, or is this a structural labor issue in the air economy, which is going to stick around? So first, if you're an airline investor, it would have been the third and maybe perhaps most important trend that... um, while there's a really strong demand environment, supply is going to be constrained for years to come uh, by artificial factors. Now, it's less of a constraint for United because we're at the high end. We're you know we're the top of the funnel, top of the pyramid right. uh, for people wa- wanting to be pilot. But there's not enough pilots in the industry. That's not the only constraint. Boeing and Airbus are way behind, and the supply chains are way behind on their ability to produce right, new right. airplanes. <laughs> Air traffic control saturation. There's airports in Europe and other places that are full. These are like four or five well, year problems. Even if you start fixing today, multi-year problems. To Scott, fix. when you're in New York next time, landing at Newark and hopefully landing at JFK with that battle, I want to talk about the, the landing gates and all that. But Mary Schlangenstein, who's our uh, ace airport reporter, says, if you don't ask Scott about Boeing 737, eight over to a seven, and they're going to add 12 more seats, and they're going to take this wing and add it on. Scott, this is not confidence building with the redo of the seven, the, the Boeing Max. I mean, it's not confident building. Do you have confidence that you guys in the FAA can get together to get that plane up in the air? Yeah, well, uh, I think you're talking about the MAX 10. And hi, Mary. Um, <laughs> uh, good to hear from you uh, virtually. But um, here's what I think about the MAX 10. Uh, first, for United, if somehow the Air MAX 10 and 7 don't get certified under the current standards, our plan is we're going to convert some of those MAX 10s into MAX 8s and 9s. And our large airplane, we're going to order more Airbus A321s, and that's going to be our large airplane. And Boeing will compensate us for that. So for United, you know, it's not really a big deal um, financially, but it's the right safety outcome. This is the most important point. You know, having, it's just a different length of airplane. It's the same airplane at a different length. And you'd never want to make two different cockpits or procedures for the exact same airplane. That detracts from safety. So I think because it's the right safety outcome, we will get to the right answer where the MAX 7 and 10 will get certified like the MAX 8 and the MAX 9. I think the more important point is a bigger one for the country, for the United States of America. Boeing is our largest exporter, high-tech exports, manufacturing jobs, high-paying jobs. And the question is about, are airlines around the world going to buy MAX 10s or Mm. are they going to buy Airbus A321s? And the real question is, it's the right safety answer are these planes going to get produced in Seattle or are they going to get built in Europe and Asia okay. and China? Look, I want both Boeing and Airbus to do well for healthy competition, uh, but I, the right answer okay. is the max. 10 Scott, answer. we're out of time. We need to see you when you're in New York, in New York next time. Scott Kirby with United Airlines after a very strong uh, earnings report, uh, to say the least. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We want to reset and get a sense of what this election is going to look like. We have three weeks. Mohammed Yunus has been tracking this all from Gallup. He is the editor-in-chief there. Mohammed, what are you looking for in terms of turnout, in terms of excitement around an election where we really have seen the odds shift pretty dramatically, whipsaw over the past few weeks? The, the number one issue voters have in mind when they vote, and we know this from generations, is the economy. Um, we also see that in our data. 40% of Americans now mention the economy or some sort of reference to inflation as the number one problem, most important problem facing the country. Um, so that is going to be front and center more than anything. In terms of turnout, we've certainly seen higher than average turnout last we checked. We're actually in the field checking that now, but it wasn't as high as we saw with the fervor we saw two years ago. Um, the social issues are certainly going to be critical in some uh, of these contests, but overwhelmingly, the economy is going to be central uh, on people's minds as they go to vote. I've got, Mohammed 159 million, which is a ginormous number for the 2020 election. I don't have the midterm statistic of 2018. What do you people see on the turnout of America for this election? It's still too early to tell. You don't really, know, Tom. Interesting. We, we don't, and there is, we don't know, and I don't think anybody really knows for a series of reasons. We certainly ask Americans, are you planning to vote? Are you more excited to vote this time than in previous elections? That metric is tracking higher than average, but certainly not as high as we saw two years ago. It's about 10 points lower than that. We're actually asking that again this month, but as we get closer to the election, um, there are a lot of factors that play into making this one really hard to guess turnout. First of all, people's voting habits have changed. Second of all, people's attitudes about voter laws have changed. People want to really open the doors to make it easier for people to vote. Most Americans support voter ID, for example, to have people vote, but they also support a series of other measures that make it easier for people to vote. So in addition, in addition to excitement to vote, there are also structural changes to the way we vote in America that are going to continue to roll out for these next several elections. Well, Mohammed, when we talk about excitement to vote, there were a number of social issues that the thought was would be a galvanizing force in these elections, one of them being abortion rights. Is that taking shape? Does it have as much firepower as initially thought several months ago when Roe v. Wade was overturned? We certainly have seen an uptick in people saying that it's important for them as a voter to vote for someone who shares their view on abortion. Now it's about 52% of Americans hold that view, and that is a relative high compared to before. However, it's only really about a 10 or 11 point jump from before the, the Roe v. Wade overturned uh, decision was leaked out. So it hasn't exploded, but it certainly has risen in terms of being an 
important issue. Right. One of the things we were talking about at the break is everybody voting is thinking about inflation because we're all impacted by it. Not everybody voting is voting somewhere where abortion is really on the ballot. Mohammed, I want to go to the heritage of Gallup back to the 1930s. You guys basically invented the industry, and you have a monitor and a body of knowledge about, say, that evening when LBJ stepped aside. What do presidents do the evening or the day after a midterm election? Well, most incumbents usually don't do great in a midterm election. It's always an uphill battle, no matter um, who the president is. So President Biden is not facing a, um, an, an easy route. However, these social issues and some of these other factors may play a, a, a role in really helping the Democrats um, you know, not fare as poorly. The other thing we're not talking about, which is more important than Please. any of this, is the is the um, jurisdictions and how districts are managed throughout the United States and all, and what seats are really at stake between Republicans and Democrats and Democrats are really facing a huge challenge just in terms of the seats that are up for grabs. Mohammed, thank you so much. Mohammed Yunus, definitive as editor in chief at Gallup. Joining us now, Dennis Gartman, surviving. 2022. Dennis, your pinata on the street. Tell us where you are right now and how ugly 2022 has been. Uh, 2022 has been demonstrably ugly. It's been very ugly. It's been un unbelievably ugly. It's going to get uglier, I'm afraid. Nonetheless, we've had a good bounce. Bounces are required in, in bear markets. I think it's been a bear market since actually since January 5th of this year. Right. And I continue to think it's going to remain a bear market. The Fed has been has told us it's going to reduce the size of its balance sheet. I think that's the most important as prospect or aspect of the markets to to understand. They expanded their balance sheet from $900 billion to $9 trillion over the course of the last decade and a half. And now they said they're going to reduce the size of the balance sheet by $95 billion a month, probably taking it back to 4 or $5 trillion over the course of the next several years. We've gone from having an expansionary Right. Wonderful, uh, bullish phenomenon to a, I think, a contractionary bearish right. phenomenon. And I think you have to remain bearish. Let's bring that over to corporations and do go Graham Dodd and Cottle. You and I remember the Vogue. It was like SPACs, Paul. Mm -hmm. Every single specialty chemical company was rolled That's up. Right. It yep. was like a roll up is the word that was invented. Dennis Gartman, are we going to have a zombie roll-up where the non-profitables that have had a free lunch for a decade get rolled up into something new and different? I think they get rolled down into into bankruptcy rather than something new and, and, and different. I think bankruptcy is 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 the is their future. I'm I'm afraid that non-profitable industries businesses have to be allowed to 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 go into the atmosphere and disappear. We've kept them alive. You've used the term zombie. I think that's a good term. It's been uh, a term that's been bandied about for a long period of time, and I think that the zombies will actually end up being dead, not uh, not kept alive. Let us hope that capitalism in, in its in its freest and best circumstances prevails. Dennis, uh, as it relates to this Federal Reserve, it feels like the you know kind of the backbone to your bearish call is the Federal Reserve. Yes. Do you have a sense of when they feel like they will have done their job, and maybe they can back off and? If, if nothing else, just see if these interest rate increases do, in fact, cut into inflation? If I've learned anything in the nearly 50 years that I've been involved in the markets is that when, once the Fed begins to change its policies, it moves rates farther 
and lasts longer than anybody ever wants to anticipate. Yep. When they when they ease monetary policy, they take rates lower than anybody believes for a longer period of time. When they tighten, they take rates higher for a longer period of time than anybody wants to anticipate. I think it's going to be at least until late in 2023, maybe 2024, before mm-hmm. the long-awaited pivot occurs. So it's just historically that's what they've done. I believe that the Fed is a historical precedent-setting and precedent-following circumstance, and I think it'll be a long time before the pivot is is um, is available to anybody who wants to think that a pivot is likely. So what's an investor to do? If I just think about my portfolio year to date, my stocks are down mid-20s, my Bonds are down mid-teens. Uh, I've got that barrel of oil in my apartment, so I'm in good shape there. But <laughs> what else do I do here if, if uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to have any Fed help until maybe a year from now? I think uh, two-year notes at 4.5% are probably a good place to hide. I, I consider that to be cash, yep. for lack of a better term. I think that's a great place to go for the next year or so. It's safe. You'll get paid. You'll earn 4.5%, and it's not a bad return. So... I think cash is the great is, is the best place to be. That's what I've done in my own in in my own account. I've gone to a rather substantive amount of two-year notes, and I'm continuing to to buy more. If we get to five yeah. percent, which I doubt that we shall, I'll buy even more. Let's go back to early Gartman. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm talking early Gartman. I'm looking at red wheat, Dennis, and I'm sorry. There's echoes here of food inflation. Yes. And yet I look at the majors and I'm like, yeah, they're sort of elevated, but UN and Rome is saying, no, maybe we really don't have food inflation. This is where you started. Red wheat is flashing red. What do you see with the food inflation of a nation in the world? I think grain prices want to go a great good deal higher, especially hard red winter wheat and soft red winter wheat. Uh, soft red winter wheat has, has been to $13 a bushel. It's fallen back to about $9 a bushel. I think it goes to $13 a bushel again or higher, given the fact that trying to get the wheat crop planted, or as they call drilled, uh, thus far this year has been uh, difficult. It's good. It's been dry weather, and it's going to remain dry. So the, the crop itself looks like it's behind schedule. Planting is, is moving quickly because you can, get, you can plant quickly into dry ground. But we need rain. We need snow this winter. We need reasonably decent temperatures through the winter to get the so, winter wheat crop through. And I'm afraid we shan't, we're not going to get that. So the Middle West agriculture is normal weather kind of drought stuff, yes. not high prices based on what a gallon of gas or diesel fuel costs. That's a good, that's, that, that's a good way to look at it. But I think that over the course of the next six months to a year, wheat prices go a lot higher. I'm very bullish on wheat. I'm not that bullish on corn, and I'm not bullish at all on the, on the soybean market. But I'm very bullish on wheat, and we forget that wheat is the most important crop in the world. It's still the, the yeah, largest employer yeah. in the world is the production of wheat around the world. Dennis Gartman, thank you so much. The Gartman Letter, greatly, greatly That's appreciated. Great stuff right there. The I learned a ton. <laughs> Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Anwiti Bahugana joins us now. She's head of multi-asset strategy at Columbia Threadneedle. And Anwiti, what will be the ballast going forward if we don't get some stability in rates in the near term? Thanks for having me, Lisa. Yeah, I think 60-40 has been a bust this year, for sure. Um, but I think a lot of the conversation around these days has been about Fed watching. And you all nailed it when you talked about real yields. So real yields, stability is going to be the ballast. But I keep coming back to what right. does stabilize real yields. And for that, we keep going back to inflation data. And we just haven't seen any signs of peak in that. There are hints, there are forward-looking metrics. If you look at sort of inflation expectations as measured in the bond market, those have come down quite sharply. But they're not at levels where right. one can say we can declare victory now. What, what's so important here is the heritage of Columbia Threadneedle, Columbia Threadneedle in, the Engl in England and your roll-up of BMO. And the idea that Ted Truscott, your leader, is, is from Scudder Stevens. It's the Boston heritage of mutual funds. Lisa mentions the debacle of 60-40. Do you invest now assuming 60-40 stability forward? Or do you have to invest with a different calculation? I think I'll break that down, Tom, into two parts. So if I look at all my strategic forecasts for the medium term, they are better than I've ever seen in 10 years. 10 years ago, when we were looking at what fixed income might return for us, we were looking at zero yields on the safer bonds and 2 or 3% on the riskier part of the 10-year. Now we are looking at 10-year at 4%. And you don't even have to take a whole lot of risks to go up to short duration IG and get 5 6% in mm -hmm. a very safe sort of risk-free equity bond portfolio. And similarly, I don't think equities are cheap. Right. Equities are probably fairly valued given the amount of uncertainty we have. But again, if you look okay, at the medium-term projections, they're looking much what better. What is so critical here is everybody's been blown up in this unique pandemic-induced bear market. Are we going on to something new or to revisit the giant pioneer Phil Caray and a way to invest that we knew decades ago? I think we won't know whether we are going to something new until after the fact. So these structural changes she in sounds regimes. like a, she, she, was that Kashkari? <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, please. So, so we do, I think that's a very important question, right. um, Tom. We do grapple with, is this a new structural regime for inflation? Exactly. To your question, it, does inflation stay around 3 4%? And we don't know that. So you could have theories that deglobalization and whatnot is going to keep inflation high forever. For the moment, I haven't seen enough evidence that there's been any sort of break in the way things function. Yes, we're going through a painful period in the markets. I'm living it every day. But I think if we have a medium-term perspective, 
then you stay with stay the course stay the strategic allocation that you have in mind and do not panic when that 6040 is already down 25%. Okay so you're looking out over the medium term in the more near term, though, I'm wondering how you're viewing political risk, because we've seen what happened in the UK, what is still ongoing in the UK, frankly. The questions Liz Truss has been getting as prime minister in parliament this morning. And we're just three weeks out from the midterms here in the US. I mean, is it time to be thinking more about domestic political risk rather than broader global monetary policy and geopolitics as we've been talking about for this entire year thus far? Absolutely, Kaylee. That's an excellent question. So no one's been talking about the political risk here in the U.S. Um, you saw how the LDI market, the bond market reacted in UK when the market did not like the fiscal plan that came out of that administration. Here, I think all the data that I'm looking at, all the opinion polls I'm looking at right now is saying that we are likely to have a divided government um, for the next two years. So I think the market can live with that. But if we see a sweep in one direction, and at that point, at this point, it means sweep in the democratic um, direction, what sort of fiscal policies come through and how does the market react to that is a key risk at this point. Anwiti, thank you so much for being with us. Anwiti uh, Bahuguna, thank you so much of Columbia Threadneedle. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.